Paul, how are we, my friend? We're okay, we're okay. It's always that initial bit of like, where, where do we start this off? Like, what, what do we kick off with? We've got probably a list of a million things that we, we do, talk we do. about, right? Um, but first of all, thanks for coming on as the first guest of the Full Circle podcast. Uh, hopefully, lots, um, lots to come. Unless it's a car crash, then it might be the only one. Um, so I'm going to take, I've known you for about 10 years now, Paul. So okay. I'm going to um, have an attempt to introduce you to the listeners or listener, as Grand. it might be yep. for the, the, yep. this first one. Um, so husband and dad, let's get the most important jobs out of the way first. Spot on. Yeah, nice Spot one. On. Yep. Um, then after that, the list is quite long. So zero entrepreneur, you've started a number of different companies across a number of different sectors from networking, IoT blockchain technologies, um, to mental health apps. You do a bit of volunteering as well. I do, yeah. I've seen, uh, we're going to talk about, we're going to touch on most of that as we go through. Grand. But the one I'm most uh, impressed with, stroke surprised about, if I'm being honest, is ultramarathon runner. Um, so I've seen that you completed the Glasgow to Edinburgh ultramarathon. I did. Now, the first time I met you 10 years ago, you didn't strike me as an ultramarathon <laughs> runner. So is, is that a new thing? Uh, is it a new thing? I think I've always, um, I've always exercised and uh -huh. I've always loved the cardio stuff. I mm -hmm. struggle with all the weights and right, the gym okay. stuff, right? That, that's opposite. just not me. Uh -huh. Oh, you're yeah, the opposite. Uh -huh. I can't run to see myself. So I, I love, mm. I love the, I've always loved the cathartic nature of cardiovascular. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people refer to that as really boring because mm -hmm. it's repetitive, right? Yeah. It's like, how long do you want to sit on a treadmill or sit on a bike and, and just go and go and go mm -hmm. and go. But I think there's something in that for people. Yeah. Not everyone, clearly, but mm -hmm. for people that allows them to kind of process yeah. stuff. Uh -huh. And so, yeah, I think I've, I'm lucky because I've always done it. I've always enjoyed it. And that's helped me in later life. Yeah. Um, so done a few marathons, not very many, uh, four, four marathons. Just and the four. Yeah. Just the four. Uh, just the four. Uh, and decided... You know what? Let's let's push myself uh -huh. here. So yeah, pick picked one nice and easy though. Uh -huh. Nice and easy ultra. Uh -huh. Nice and flat along the canal pretty much all the way. Right, okay. Um but my goodness was the weather shite. Was it? Oh, it was horrendous. It was uh, I'm I'm not talking about like light rain. Uh -huh. It was biblical. down yeah. biblical uh -huh. right all the way through. So just just finished an an under 14 hours. 14 hours? Just under. My 13, 13.57 or something like that, I think. Um, but it was horrendous. Are you moving constantly through that? Yeah, constantly moving. Yeah. Uh, checkpoints along the way. Yeah. So probably, you know, anywhere between five and 10 minutes to mm -hmm. change your water bottles or your fluids. So what distance is that? Ultra? 56 miles. Right, okay. 56 miles. So a little over two marathons. Uh -huh. um, and, and you think, if you do the actual calculation, which I did many times before uh -huh. it because I was nervous, anxious, stressed about it, mm -hmm. um, you do the calculation and you go, well, it's only like four miles an hour. Uh -huh. You know, I can walk at four miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, the reality, very, very different, right? Just the continuing yeah. movement and the challenges mentally. Uh -huh. uh, and, and everyone says it, but honestly, it's more of a mental game than yeah. a physical game. Of course, you have to train. And I did a lot of miles. Mm -hmm. um, but mental is, I would say, more important. You have to prepare yourself for it. Was there any thought of quitting at any point, John? Not quitting, no. no, uh, no. You know, I'd already convinced myself that I was crawling over that line. Right, okay. The only concern I had was there was checkpoint cutoff times. Mm -hmm. So I had to get through those checkpoints along the way before they pulled me from the race. Uh, that was the only concern. Had, yeah, right, okay. and at the beginning of the race, uh -huh. that's actually pretty tight. Yeah, um, but they allow you a bit more yeah. leeway, I guess, as you they know you're tiring, right? So I knew if I could get to kind of checkpoint five six, that'd be grand, and I, I would just you know crawl it crawl it over the line. So yeah. and how were you 
the next day, the joints, the knees. Oh, the- horrendous. Like really, really bad. But I did mm-hmm. recover super quick. So mm-hmm. day two, much day Day one afterwards, couldn't, like literally couldn't get up. Um, day two, got up a bit, moved a bit, still in pain. Day three, a little bit of pain, uh, like you do when you normally exercise. Yeah, yeah. Day four, absolutely fine. I mean, my legs were weak for probably a week and a half. Yeah. Um, but generally... Really good recovery. And is there any other ultra marathons in the card? Oh, I've got my eye on it. It's too early. Yeah, it's too early to to do it. But um, if if I did it again, I'd go. I'd go really big. Mm-hmm. I'd go really big. Um, is there not one up in the West Highland Way or something? There is. Like that? Two, yeah. two, I think it's two hundred and fifteen miles. If it's the same one we're thinking of. Love it. Um, right. And and it's it's horrendous. Like mm-hmm. you have to keep. You can't stop for more than two hours or something. Right. Otherwise, they pull you. And you've got the live trackers, so they can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we'll see. It's too early, but I'm I'm delighted. It was it was one of those experiences that were one of the most challenging things that I think I could have done, mm-hmm. but one of the most rewarding things. And I think you can take that lesson away from exercise. You know, if you if you challenge yourself and put yourself into situations where failure is a very distinct possibility, when you succeed, because you don't always, but when you succeed, my God, does that feel good. Yeah, no one's ever said after exercising, I wish I didn't do that. No. Do they? Spot on. Uh-huh. Spot on. Yeah, but even though myself, after a stressful day at work, you should go to the gym, you should go out for a run, but it's the actual doing it. It's hard. Again, uh, men- yeah. mental, right? Mm-hmm. So is that you saying and committing to, to running the next ultra with me then? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I'll clap you on it then. Uh, oh, I think I'll die. Um, so taking a step back, Paul, so a young Paul Hutchison with a twinkle in his eye. Yep. Where did it kick off for you in terms of your, your work life? Yeah, uh, work life. I, I think I think it was an interesting one for me. So I was never academically gifted, suited. So I was lucky enough on appeal to end up in a grammar school. Um, but I knew from that that day that I started in that grammar school as a 12-year-old, oh, this, this just isn't me, right? Yeah. I'm not suited to it. And it was a struggle all the way through. So I was never academically inclined. And that still shows today, right? I think you should acknowledge, you know, areas of weakness. Not everyone can be good at everything. And it really, it really cheeses me off when I see people that, you know, say great things about themselves. I often say, you know, I'm, I'm, if, we, if there were 10 things on the table, I'd be absolutely diabolical at nine of them. Um, but the context to that is when I tell you I'm good at something, I'm bloody good at it, right? Um, but that's the context. Mm-hmm. Um, so where did it start? So I left, left school early, few GCSEs in the back pocket. Um, and, I, and I was literally that stereotypical guy that went onto the factory floor. And I think my first job was putting together coat hangers. Right on a conveyor challenging, belt, yeah. really uh, challenging, yeah. right? Um, and then what did I do after that? I got promoted into packing greetings cards there on the factory go. floor. Uh-huh. So that you'd think that was the pinnacle, right? <laughs> um, but I, I guess all of this was good, right? And 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 this is what I mean. I don't think there are any experiences that you can't take something from. So I think, and it's hard to explain this, but I've always had ambition, motivation, desire, hard work ethic. I think it probably comes from parents who I saw day in, day out, going out and doing really tough work. Mm -hmm. Um, But I always had that. So I was always searching for the what next. And there was a kind of pivot point at the Hutchinson days, which I'm sure we'll come on to, Mm -hmm. right? But, But leading up to that, 
So fell into the world of admin, fell into the world of payroll, fell into the world of maintaining retail stores in a headquarters back in the days of video stores. Mm -hmm. Um, So started to organize resources to go and fix situations that would keep businesses operational. And I think that's where the beginnings of it came. I saw the value of that to the big enterprise client. Uh, both in terms of level of service, reaction of you know speed of reaction, um, and producing good results to enable them to continue their business and drive revenue. Right, that wasn't all there at the time, but I think that's where the kernel of of, of where I ended up was. Um, so went from there, tried a few other things out, and then fell by accident again into technology. And I was always looking for the next thing in terms of feeling like I had to progress. And what did progress mean to me at that stage? It was you know the perception of a better title or the perception of more revenue and more cash, more salary. Right. Mm. Um, and that, and that continued, fell into the world of technical, started to get into the world of Cisco training. Again, though, similarities in terms of managing technical resource that expanded to kind of global resource where we were flying Cisco instructors in to deliver training. And again, started to recognize the value of expertise to clients. So how do you go from, coat hangers to understanding that Cisco's a, a thing and that it needs training. There's quite a gap because it doesn't sound like you had a technical background at that point. Not, not no. at all. So my first job mm-hmm. as a, in that world, ready for this? My mm-hmm. first job was it was a training centre, right? So there were five, six classrooms in this training centre. My job was to order the Cisco manuals, ship them from the warehouse backwards and forwards, clean the desks after the last week, and the whiteboard and tidy the room and tidy the chairs and put all the relevant collateral on the table. That was my first job so in the operations really team. Really starting at the Basic, yeah, uh-huh. super basic. But if you've got a passion for something and you're inquisitive and curious, you can't help but become more and more involved. And I think that's a key thing as well. If you're genuinely passionate, so you don't talk about passion, you are passionate, very big difference, then... Businesses, colleagues, customers will always not only see it, they'll feel it and they'll value it. And that essentially meant that I started to rise through the ranks in the operational departments of various Cisco training partners and IT training companies to managing those technical resources, understanding what the certifications meant understanding the impact for the businesses to the point where I became operations director and then started my own training company with some colleagues and we were we were one of the top Cisco training partners in the UK. See your your point and passion. Um it's so important for the young folk coming up just now. Um I hire a lot of um younger folk. I don't know if I'm getting older or they're getting younger, but something's <laughs> happening. Um but the difference is when you get someone in who really truly wants to be there and it screams out them as opposed to most folk who, who turn up and want to, to, to get in and out. It's a, it's a massive point. Huge point. And I, I guess I, I have a bit of sympathy and empathy for, for young folk. Right? Absolutely. Because when I, when I look back, I think it's really hard to try and define your future direction in terms of years, five years, 10 years, decades when you're 20 years old, mm-hmm. when you're 25 years old. I think there's old. more pressure on them now to actually have a plan. I would say there is. Yeah, they, I've got um, kids, I've got nieces and nephews, and they're always wondering about what do I need to do? And you think you're 17 or well, don't worry about it. No, don't uh, worry about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think 
passion towards a thing or a topic is one thing. Mm. Passion to do the right thing, which is ubiquitous wherever you apply it, mm-hmm. something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. If that makes sense, right? Uh, well, I say try and find something you enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's Spot important. So going from where was the leap for ha- taking a salary yep. to actually making that leap of, of going out by yourself? Because it, it's not an easy thing to do. No. People get used to a steady income. They get mortgages. They get bills. Yep. They they start to become rely on it. So it's almost like a handcuff. So it takes a lot to jump from saying, do you know what? I'm going to move away from this salaried position and I'm going to go for my, my own. So what? how did that come about? Oh, so a couple of points here, yeah. right? So, so I I think I've changed my opinion on this mm-hmm. over time yeah. and through experience, right? So, making a decision to do something is not hard mm-hmm. in any way, shape, or form. My my own view, right? It's the easiest thing that you can do, and actually, by making the decision, you provide yourself with clarity, and therefore, you're able to focus. A lot of dithering around should I, shouldn't I goes on for years and can actually be disruptive to your mental capability and your ability to perform. Um, so I'd say the decision actually is really easy, but people are reluctant to make it. And why is that? I think it ultimately boils down to risk mm-hmm. or the perception of risk from the individual. So you get higher risk takers and lower risk takers, right? And and ultimately, I think I very much put myself in the bracket of higher risk. But when you put yourself in that bracket, one of the things that comes with higher risk is higher propensity for failure. And that's a that's a really easy thing to say, but you have to accept it. If you if you want to be more high risk, not not irresponsibly high risk, but if you want to if you want to put yourself out there, you have to accept that failure. So I think that's that's the key point. I I I in that training world saw a lot of enterprise customers that were asking for more and more professional services linked requests. And at the time, you know, we very much wanted to stick to our core which was training in the business, but I saw this opportunity and it was high risk and I took it and it was it was a disaster. <laughs> the the initial bits were an absolute disaster. I, you know, if you if you'd have written a rule book on how to screw up starting a business at the beginning, me made them all, made them all, made yeah. them all. Um, so I took the leap, made the mistakes, but very quickly because you make mistakes. I'm a big fan of 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 making mistakes are the key to learning. You can read all you like, you can absorb all you like from experts, but until you actually go and make that mistake. I don't think I don't think it becomes real. Failure is right? one of the biggest items to success. Huge, without a doubt. Hugely. Yeah. Um, I don't think I know anybody who hasn't suffered failure who's then went on to be successful. A lot of win. And and almost when when you go through the failure, it takes the edge off it. Absolutely. It yeah. takes the edge mm-hmm. off it because I think we go round in our own little bubbles and our own worlds and our own ecosystems, frightened to death of how people see us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Frightened to death. It's one of the biggest freeing things when you realise it doesn't actually matter what no, people think. No, and, and actually, mm-hmm. here's, here's, here's the bit. I don't think anyone cares. No. <laughs> they, they really don't care. We think mm-hmm. people really care about, you know, what we're up to, what we're doing. And I'm not saying people don't at a at an interest level, but... Do they do they really care whether you're this, whether you're that, whether you do this? Oh, it's just interest. 
and best. And who cares? And who cares? Uh-huh. Exactly. Um, so you started off in the training then. Mm-hmm. How did Hutchison Networks come about? So I've I obviously knew Hutchison fairly well. I was a customer yep. um, for, a, for a long time. And you're still talking to me. Yes, still That's talking amazing. to me. There we go. Um, so for the, the benefit of anyone who's watching or, or listening, Hutchison Networks um, was a Cisco reseller. Uh, that's how you started off, wasn't mm-hmm. it? And you grew that to become a significant player in the Cisco ecosystem. I th- I think so, but we were always we were always the anomaly. Mm-hmm. I think in the in the Cisco partner space, and and I'll explain I'll explain why. Because my background was always around the professional services, we were delivering professional services and punching well above our weight. So we were deploying, you know, high level engineers, low level engineers to fix problems out in the field, outside of the UK. And we weren't getting involved and actually had no appetite at the time for selling the hardware, selling the mm-hmm. software. So we weren't really bothered by that. And when when we got to the pinnacle of our revenue, which was, which was small really, but when we got to the pinnacle of that number, a significant percentage of that, I'm talking 70%-ish, all professional services. So when you contextualize the number with the services number, I mean, you, you and I could go out tomorrow and sell, you know, two, three million quids worth of hardware. That's one deal. Yeah. And it's a one transaction. But professional services is a completely different kettle of fish. So I think we were an anomaly, but we we got noticed very quickly because, again, we were another version of an anomaly because um, we were very much technically led. And that's why we used Hutchison's in the first place, because it was... Uh, we were an early adopter and data eater of Cisco ACI. No one knew anything about it. Um, we got Hampton in. Hampton. Um, yes. Uh-huh. Um, so clearly you were always looking for the, the, the next technology wave, what was coming next, because that was brand new at the time. In- innovation is something that I, I really care about. Like I'm hugely passionate about innovation. So, you know, people like Stephen Hampton, uh, I can't, speak highly enough of Stephen, right? Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and there are people in the industry, and they're rare, they're rare, who explore innovation in the technical space, really dig into it, and, and here's the key bit, they understand whether it's relevant today or whether it will be relevant tomorrow, mm-hmm. or whether it won't be relevant at all because of the market conditions or the competitive scenario, right, that's at play in the market. Um, and Stephen executes, uh, executed that phenomenally, right? And it's great to see now he's, um, he's out on his own. He he's, is. Uh-huh. He is. He's going well. We use them all the time. Um, so no, I, I couldn't be happier for yep. him. Um, so... Hutchison, let's to frame this. So I'm actually surprised what you were saying about the services revenue. I didn't know that. I, I in my head thought it was a much bigger tin business. Um, no, not at all. Right. Okay. The, t- the tin business was the smallest aspect. Uh-huh. Towards the end, we were naturally selling more of mm-hmm. it because of the technical led expertise. But at the very beginning, first five or six years, pretty much I would say ninety percent professional services. So that dropped to about seventy percent. So you had how? How long was Hutchison going in the first instance up until the, the kind of pinnacle when you reached your peak? Oh, goodness. Um, I might get this wrong, but I, th- I think Ash. it was about, yeah. So yeah. I reckon it was about seven years. Seven years, which isn't uh, long. Which isn't long. It's no. high, uh-huh. high growth, mm-hmm. high growth. And I, and I think... Growing every year, year on year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and like that as well. Mm-hmm. 
so yeah and uh, you know it, it maybe shortcutting the conversation but I have lots of thoughts about that, that mm -hmm. the kind of uh, welcome intrusions into my own brain yeah. and then are unwelcome intrusions uh -huh. to my own brain, depending on what day of the week it is or what month of the year it is. But I think in summary, um, you know, we, we grew too fast mm -hmm. and that was a reflection of a mix of passion, ambition. But when I think about it, it was a reflection of customers' feedback and desire for more. Mm -hmm. You know, if customers weren't demanding more and more and more of us because of the value we were giving, it probably would have been an easier and a, a, a more sustainable growth curve. Yeah. Um, but I think we went out, we were delivering something different, which was technically led quality, which affected business outcomes. So it wasn't about tech for tech's sake. It was, why do you want this? We would often turn down business because the customer didn't even know why they were buying the stuff. Right, okay, yeah. And and so, whole different kettle of fish. Now, the I'm jumping all over the place. The thing that really amazes me, and, and, and it saddens me actually, is that today, I'm in a different space now, but I keep getting pulled back into that world, right? I keep getting pulled back into that world. I'm happy to assist, I'm happy to support, but what I'm seeing in that world is actually a degradation of quality from where I originally left it, which was a poor execution. Would you ever go back? Quality. It sounds like a little bit of unfinished business, perhaps. Uh, I, I, never I say think, never, right? uh, yeah, yeah, never say uh -huh. never. And I, and I think, I think the metrics for me have changed mm -hmm. in terms of what ticks the box now for me. Um, it's got to, at, at the core, it's got to be delivering great service, innovative technology to give competitive advantage and operational efficiencies, whatever that may be, because even in the same sector, they're different for say, for, the, for, for similar customers, um, but for the market. So you took a VC fund and when was that? Was that about 2017? So um, PE, it was, it right. was PE. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. and, and there was a queue of folk. So we hit, we hit the 10 million mark yeah. organically, mm -hmm. right? And, and one of the big lessons in my life was when you're making significant amounts of profit and and cash, try and try and just keep some of that for yourself, <laughs> uh, rather than Darth Laddie here, who literally grew from three people to just at the point of getting PE, we were probably I think around seventy people. That's a lot of mouths so to feed. That's it? a lot yeah. of mouths to feed, and that was prior to PE. Mm -hmm. So it was all organic. That was delivering services, making money, reinvesting, mm -hmm. doing the same, 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 same again, and. I shot myself personally in the foot there, um, but you know, again, another great lesson. Um, but yeah, took PE in two thousand and eighteen, and twelve months later, almost to the day, wasn't it? To the day, almost, yeah, yeah uh, like a day either side. I think uh, we went pop. Yeah. So going from going from being able to get investment into the organisation to go and pop, as you say, going bankrupt um, a year later, that's quite a catastrophic failure. Um, people often think these mistakes happen quite close to the actual event of going bankrupt, but the, the things tend to happen much more in the past and it might be insignificant things, but when you look back, you think, actually, these decisions were the actual catalysts to the path we ended up on. 
Um, I always heard one of the PE guys talking about um, companies that go under, and they said it's like a plane going down. If they start pulling up too late, it doesn't matter. Yeah, they're going to hit the ground eventually. Yeah. Um, so, I, I assume you've looked back a lot. Um, it, it's what happened. So, where do you think those mistakes were? Not even mistakes, decisions. Yeah. Uh, so multifaceted, yeah. right? And and I don't think anyone could with their hand on their heart, tell you that any one of those things led to, ultimately led to us going mm -hmm. bang, right? Um, but l let me think about the obvious ones, right? The, ob the obvious ones are poor hiring choices. Mm -hmm. um, the obvious one was probably a reflection of my personality in that when you start, and not a lot of folk really understand this at the beginning, right? The first kind of three, four years, especially the first couple of years, they are getting that initial momentum from kind of zero mile an hour to, let's say, five mile an hour as an analogy, is probably a hundred times more difficult. And let that sink in, a hundred times more difficult from zero to five than it is to move from five to 50. Absolutely. But no, but there's very few people that are on the journey or on the bus during those difficult years, early years, because quite honestly, you have to be made of something to be on that bus. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. It's bloody difficult and it affects your personal life. But that's what's required to go from zero to five. So... I think the reflection of my personality was I had a, a, a good core number of people that were involved in and around the business, either directly or indirectly, that were a part of those early years. And I was loyal to some of those people. The business had outgrown those people and I, I should have been more disciplined in making the right decision with some of those key roles. Um, but that's on me, right? Let me be clear. That's on me. That's not on them. Did um, you know at the time that the individuals weren't right, but you didn't want to make the call or were you blindsided or not no, paying attention? Do you know, or? it was, it was, uh, and I would describe myself as a pessimist, yeah. but actually in that scenario, I think I was an eternal optimist. I was hoping. Loyal, perhaps. Loyal, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, but actually hopeful that through experience, those individuals may step up and be able to manage more effectively. Um, but anyway, that that's one area. Mm -hmm. I think another area was that always say yes to the customer, um, except when they want stuff they don't know what they want. Uh, but that high growth curve, right, super high growth curve, um, we should have just hemmed that back a bit. Um, and then I would also say, you know, my own personal view made the wrong choice on the investment front. And I've heard that story, you know. A tale as old as time, oh, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Right. And so, yeah, so so that's a story for another day. But I think, you know, you can, you can already see multiple decisions that in hindsight would have gone back and changed. And... But this, this for, for me, and this, this is the beauty of it for me personally again, and a lot of people went through enormous pain. Let's be clear about mm -hmm. that. The one thing I take comfort from, rightly or wrongly, but, but you know, in the days leading up to our actual administration, 
competitors were coming in and taking our employees. Yeah. Right. Or, and, and, and I would say that, again, I'm, I'm probably going to use the 70, maybe even 80% number here. Most of them had secured work before we went into administration. There's always a thing about even a hint of distress in a business. It can be enough to put it under, even if it could pull out of it. hundred um, percent. As soon as a, it's like a run on a bank. It isn't is. It? As soon it's spot on. It, it, as, soon as soon as they starts, start hitting it. Yeah, 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 uh-huh. yeah. You're right. Um, I remember speaking to you probably about even three weeks before you went under and you mm-hmm. were still up to, uh, you, you, you didn't think it was going to happen. You still thought there was a, there was various paths out. So it must have came as a, an, I think it came as a surprise, even quite close to the end, or were you just being overly optimistic and trying to present a, a rosier picture so you didn't get that run in the bank? What was the? Uh, it's probably a mix of all of, all of those. I, I think I always I always think with logic and common sense be before anything else, right? So in my in my logical world, we you know we had an amazing customer list. We hadn't really started even touching the sides in terms of where we could where we could get to, and the the pipeline was dramatic, right? Mm-hmm. In a positive way. Um, so, in my logical head, why wouldn't why wouldn't you come in and take you know take a position? And ironically, the number of organisations that I'd spoke to in the days or weeks not, you know, two weeks out, maybe a week out, leading up to the final decision, they looked at me and said, why, why didn't you pick up the phone a month ago? Yeah. Or two months ago, we were actively in the market for businesses like yours Mm -hmm. already. You know, so... So, so many lessons to learn from that. But, but, But ultimately, and here's the key bit for me... Personally, I am absolutely delighted that that experience happened to me. And it sounds like, mm-hmm. of course you are. Yeah. Of course you are, right? But I can't, I can't reiterate enough how happy I am that I went through that and that I had the chance to reevaluate things. Um, but I take it that that happiness comes at a price. So... When the business goes pop, yeah, um, and I've I, I did put myself in your shoes in terms of one day you are, um, you've got all these people relying on you, and you shouldn't forget when you when you're in charge of something or when you're running something, you've got everyone's mouth to feed. It's not just your own, um, and most leaders take that personally. Um, so one day you're responsible for a, a significant organisation that you've built from scratch. Mm-hmm. The next day it's gone. It must be like grief. It must almost be like the loss of a loved one. Yeah, and and but but I would say it goes it goes even further back than that. Yeah. So if if you you know I, I'm not being dramatic for effect here. Yeah. From the day I walked in, putting those two coat hangers together, mm-hmm. to the point that I went pop. Mm-hmm. Really. Yeah. I was on a singular path to improvement and success in the business world. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the light switch went. So the the grief wasn't just about the Hutchinson yeah. and the business, although a large part of it mm-hmm. clearly was at the time. The grief was actually a a self reflection about how best to describe this. 
if you if you can't trust your own decision making, where do you go from there? So you are doubting yourself. What, why wouldn't you? Yeah, on every aspect. On mm-hmm. every aspect. So at that point, you know, people find it hard to trust others. Mm-hmm. And if you're metaphorically looking in the mirror, and number one, you don't know the guy, because everything, if you ask questions about what this guy values, family, health, n- lots of things, environment, none of those things that were absolutely paramount and core to me as a human being were present in that business journey. None of them. Yeah. So then you're looking in the mirror, you can't trust yourself because whatever decisions you made on that path led to this, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And number two, you, you, you're, not even, you're not even true to who you are. What are you doing? When you are, I think sometimes in business, the business can overtake you as a person. Um, you see opportunity and you forget about, and opportunities that are hard to come by. People need to understand how hard it is to make a tenor. I mean, it, it's it's really, really hard. Really? Um, yeah. And when this opportunity starts stacking up in front of you, it's very easy to get um, totally focused on that opportunity at all costs. And it doesn't matter about your personal life. It doesn't matter about how you're making the money. The goal's there. You know how hard it was, that 5% you talked about, yep. getting to five miles an hour yep. and started going. So um, so the the week after it, so clearly it goes bust. Yep. What what happens in that instance? Does the phone stop ringing or does it ring more with calls you don't want to take? What what does that first couple of weeks look like? No, it goes quiet. Deathly quiet, Death, yeah. Deathly quiet. Mm-hmm. Deathly quiet, which is, which is, which is almost worse. Yeah because everything's going on at a million miles an hour, that's your mm-hmm. standard normal day-to-day practice, and then quite the opposite, overnight, and not through choice. Uh-huh. Um, but there was a bit of relief in there, because if you can imagine the tension, the stress build up to what was in effect inevitable, whether I was optimistic or pessimistic about it, it was inevitable really mm-hmm. past a certain point. But it all of a sudden ends, and... There's a there's a relief that it's happened, then reality, and then reality. Mm-hmm. Um, it in terms of the journey out of that, I take it it's not um, pick yourself up after a couple of months and dust yourself off and off you go again. But looking from the outside in, um, it seems like there was a conscious decision at some point to take control. Yeah. Or was it more organic than that, that you had to re-baseline? You know, this is going to sound really corny, like find yourself again. And the... it's, it's not corny yeah. at all, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 it, and it's, it's accurate um, because that lack of trust in the person you're looking at, you, you almost have to build the relationship back, back up with yourself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it does sound corny, but that's the reality of it. You have to learn to trust yourself again before you can think about what next um, there's also a financial element. You've got a family. You've oh, got you, you, cat- cat- catastrophic. You, you've and got I, to pay. And I'm hearing rumours, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, when it first happens, I'm hearing rumours. You know, just comical stuff. 
So in the middle of all, everyone loves a gossip, don't they? Oh, uh-huh. You know, I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've siphoned off X and I've siphoned really? off Y, and I didn't hear any of that. So oh, it's yeah, just, uh-huh. it's just, it, but it amazes me and it saddens me as well. Mm-hmm. But, but, um, that's really, I mean, it's hard to take, and and you know what was harder to take, and it's not. By the way, again, let's reiterate, this affected everyone. It affected suppliers who didn't get paid. Mm-hmm. Right? It was a car crash of epic proportions. This isn't about me. It just happens to be that I'm on the podcast, yeah. right? Um, but for me, it, it, it was catastrophic. It was catastrophic because I, I, I went from having 125 full-time staff that couldn't, you know, it was, a, it was literally a conveyor belt of airplanes at my office door, you know, all the time, n- nonstop. Can you help me with this bit of guidance here? What do you think? Like nonstop, all the time. And that went down to a handful of people that continued to Check communicate with me. Yeah, And those people actually surprised me because I wouldn't have selected those people mm-hmm. at the beginning. But th- those people were the ones who continued to communicate when they had nothing to gain. Yeah. That's a massive point, isn't it? Is, um, you've got to look at why people are around you in that situation within your life and what's their actual motivation and what they're trying to um, what trying to get out of it um so what was the first job i guess after that where, where did it start off again so you've, you've you've went back to the beginning yeah um so i i i reverted to what i've always been passionate about which is the innovation mm-hmm. and you know iot appealed to me mm-hmm. um I, I, I'm, I'm still hugely passionate about that. But in hindsight, because it took me two years, really, to even kind of get back to my feet, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would say in hindsight now around the IoT space, it's relevant now. I was probably a couple of years too early yeah. on it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's an incredibly exciting proposition for customers and... You know, I, I, I can't, once you get me started talking about it, I can't stop. Um, but I think, it, it, you know, the key thing here is my, what well, I call it my old world, my new world, right? Um, my, old, my old world was about working, working really, really hard in a laser focused way for an end objective. And if that took three years, five years, 10 years, then so be it. Let's get on with it. Roll the sleeves up because that's where we're going, Right. Now it's about trying to be as disciplined as possible for myself and those around me in enjoying every single day. Genuinely. Genuinely trying to enjoy every single day on that journey so that it's a journey worth taking, but there's some, there's some positive attributes that come from every single day that nourishes you and actually the end objective becomes less important then. Yeah. It's a very unique way of looking at it, about trying to enjoy each and every single day. Because most people in business try and get the days out of the way. It's always the next quarter, the next year end, yep. the, the next big deal, yep. onto the next thing. Yeah. Um, no no more so than at the end of a financial year when you go for, right, okay, we achieved a target, then next day it's, okay, let, let, let's start again. So it's a, a very unique, unique way of looking at it. Um, and I think that will actually change the fabric of these businesses. Um, if, if that's if that is every single day is how, how do we make this slightly better hugely but I, I I struggle you know and 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 maybe it's because I've been burnt a few times but I struggle even now when I talked about my experience of being pulled back into that old world and seeing the kind of delivery 
ethos and values around professional services, it's shocking, right? It's shocking. And um, I, I, look at, I look at the way businesses are run today and day-to-day stuff. Forget metrics, right? Margins, revenue, mm-hmm. customer acquisition. Just forget that for a second. That's all assumed. But I say, see the way they're actually run. And it's, it's I'm going to use the word, it's abhorrent. Mm-hmm. It doesn't align with being human. Yeah. Business does not align to being human. Let that sink in. Mm-hmm. Right? So something's got to change. And, and if you look at it at a societal level, you know, I, I walked past the cenotaph on the way here, right? And, and there was, a, there was a, a note on the cenotaph around, you know, let, let's, let's make sure we don't forget why these people died and sacrificed their lives so that we can live in peace, right? Mm. What have we learned? Yeah. Like, what have we learned? And how long ago was that, right? So what are we learning about the damage we've done to the planet? You know what we've learned. Absolutely Mm -hmm. nothing. In fact, we're pressing the accelerator, not the decelerator, right, or the brake. Um, So then I bring it back down a level, forget the kind of macro stuff, and I look at business, which is inconsequential. It's inconsequential. It's a money driver. A singular aspect of life, financial wealth, is is what business is about. A singular, singular aspect of life. It cannot align. It cannot align to humanity. So it's flawed. And that's why trying to enjoy the journey by by having genuine positive impact and working and partnering with people who genuinely care is is critical to your own health and your own sanity at the end, at the end. Yeah, your business ends up being a mirror for your soul, doesn't it? It, it, it bounces back. Um, I'm a little bit more optimistic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. See, a lot of young people coming up, they have a totally different mentality. 100% totally different. 100% A totally agreed. different mentality. Yeah. Um, and hopefully they can drive change. And it doesn't, um, it, it needs individuals to change. But da- Danny, is there, is there a danger there though, right? Is there a danger there? Because if we, if we look at our parents and our parents before that, they were placing all the hope on us. Yeah. Someone's got to get it right. Surely. So you are the optimist. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you see them coming up, um, the younger generation thinking a different way. Um, there's a lot of distraction in terms of social media and making sure you look perfect, but they're making decisions for different reasons. Yeah, um, I, I can see that. I, I even see it within my, my own business. Um, it's very easy to throw money at people. Um, to solve a problem mm-hmm. you're not happy here's some money you're not happy here's some money absolutely that's the the lazy way to fix Correct. a problem see the amount of young people who would just not respond to that in the slightest and actually say money is important but it's maybe third or fourth huge credit to uh, um actually my work life balance my own mental health the company's esg policies in terms of how you're operating yep. the stance how i see myself yeah these are all more important than money and you've done phenomenally well at data vita there yeah uh, like look, amazing there's amazing. a lot, lot of yep. mistakes along the way of course and, and I, I was I, I came out of that um, reseller community where it was pretty abhorrent as you say everyone shouted at everyone and it was all about screwing each other over mm-hmm. to get the, the buck so you would throw money at things to, to try and make it go away but I think it's more in, important to understand what what people want and techie people are an anomaly as well I would say they are yeah, absolutely uh, they're, they're yeah. wired differently yeah. Um, yeah. from what you're doing so um 
looking at um, the is it third platform technologies? Yep. Yeah, third platform technologies, um, IoT and blockchain. Now, people hear blockchain, they think crypto and they think Ponzi scheme or whatever in, in terms yeah. of what yeah. you're doing. So, um, can you simply explain what is blockchain and why the the normal business person will see it more often as we go forward. Who, who are you asking? Somebody, somebody else over there, or yeah? No, I was, I was looking. <laughs> and I was trying to gauge into the future. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you my take on blockchain, yeah. right? Which is you're absolutely right to call it out. And you know, I was going to say nothing to do with crypto. Of course, it's linked with crypto because it's the methodology of which crypto is based, right? Yeah. But blockchain is entirely separate. And the simplest way that I use to describe it is capturing and writing data to multiple sources at the same time. So think about a standard way of recording any data. And that, that data, let's be clear, that data could be audio, visual data, it could be statistical data, it could be IoT data, cellular data, it doesn't matter what the data is, right? But if you, as the custodian of whatever data it is, are writing that data to a single point on a cloud, on a server, in a file, it's open to manipulation, it's open to change, and there are concerns around that. Yeah. One person sees all of the data, which One, is always an and, issue. And controls yeah. that data, uh -huh. right? Um, think about Al Capone. Yeah. So blockchain allows you to write data to distributed ledgers synchronously. And what that does is it secures the integrity of the data. And those repositories of multiple writing are often you know, globally placed servers. So why would you, you this isn't, this isn't, a, this isn't a, a value proposition around writing data to the blockchain en masse. This is around businesses starting to think critically about which data exists in my business internally and externally that's absolutely crucial. So things like risk, insurance, health, uh, financial, sustainability, ESG, production data, um, anything that can be challenged if it's written to the blockchain, you've got a completely different level of authentication and validation at your disposal. And it means that there's not a single person that controls that data. So from an outside audience, whether that's legislation, regulatory, even switched on and informed consumers, now they see you very differently. Do you not think the technology is too efficient at having that single point of truth? And a lot of businesses, big organizations, governments, wherever they may be, don't want everyone to have a single view of the truth. Yeah, and 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 there are ways that you can do calculations in the single pane of glass. Yeah. So you can come to the conclusions you need to and write that data differently to the blockchain to secure the integrity of the whole picture. Yeah. Right? But anyone who needs to understand and be transparent can. So there are different ways there are different ways of doing it, but absolutely, but from a consumer perspective, if a brand is telling you, look, there are certain things we want to share with you and there are certain things we don't, I, I know where I go in yeah. my head as a consumer. Yeah. So if I'm a consumer and you're saying, see this product that we make, we feel so passionately about who made it, how we made it, and the supply chain that was a part of making it, 
that we're going to store that data in the blockchain to be publicly available, transparent, and can be challenged. And the difference there is immediately you get a different sense of who that brand is and that they're not perfect, but they're on a journey to doing the right things. Yeah. So if you've got a, a CTO or an IT director or a, a, a business owner sit, sitting somewhere, what's a, an actual real life use case that you've seen implemented where so we're we're working with um we're working with distillery at the moment um who are and we're one of the first by the way arden american distillery mm-hmm. uh, a delphi distillery one of the first to um to really live and breathe sustainability before it was a fashion yeah they they demonstrated behaviors around that which were way before people started to put it on you know, LinkedIn and Instagram and everything else, right? So that's that's an example of an organization that's incredibly passionate about living and breathing values that ultimately de- that ultimately lead in the, to the production of their product. And in this case, uh, amazing whiskey. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I haven't tasted any alcohol in a few years, so you have to tell me what it's like. Um, so. What do they care about? They care about being transparent. They care about validating their supply chain and they and they care about sharing the journey of that product and they see the benefit for their consumers. So they can, their consumers can share in that joy. They can share in that value or the set of values and we've, we've helped them to lock in the data that's important to be transparent. And we're now looking at integrating different areas that were disparate. Every business have different data repositories, right? You've got a financial repository might be in the cloud. You've got a manufacturing repository. You've got servers on site. You've got, you know, legislation, health and safety, insurance, you know, whatever it is tends to be CRMs tends to be in different places. So when you look at that, you're not seeing that single pane of glass. So our system, our, our system, for example, is starting to look at integrating energy data into their production data so they can make better decisions. It's starting to look at HR data and financial information from supply chains into the same. So you can start to analyze the co- and correlate the relationships that these disparate data systems have with each other. And when you do that, my goodness, you come to amazing conclusions around efficiencies and decision making that are second to none. And, you know, I've, I've got a podcast coming out in the next week, uh, I think uh, next week, certainly very shortly, where don't take it from me, listen to the customer. What's the name of the podcast? Give it a little plug. Goodness me, it's a third platform podcast. So it's the first third platform p- p- podcast we've done. Um so yeah, guests, guests on there. We've got the production manager, um, Scott, and the marketing manager, Jenny, on that podcast. So yeah. So, no, look forward to that. Yep. I think the um, the ESG element, sustainability, is massive for blockchain. Yep. Um, anyone who knows me knows I'm always banging on about uh, greenwashing mm-hmm. in terms of people misreporting. So you have these big organizations, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, all reporting the sustainability in a different way. You need to be a data scientist to get anywhere close to seeing what the truth is. So that um, unbiased view of data, yep. um, sustainability is one, financial fair play is another. Um, and I think for organisations who actually say, do you know what, here is, we're not the custodian of this data anymore, this is the data, and take your own view on it, I think that takes a very brave organisation. Huge. Um, 
but it, but it, but it's an inevitable trajectory, uh, right? Inevitable. So so if you know that it's inevitable, make a decision. Like GDPR, do you remember GDPR yeah. uh -huh. when it started at enterprise level, Fortune five hundred? I think it started, and um, penalties were lenient because it was new, and then gradually they started lowering the bar. Although since Brexit, no one cares. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the thing uh, I know you're you're also passionate about yep. is you understood, yes, isn't it? Yeah, um, which started off as a mental health app for the individual, but I think it's evolved since, hasn't it? Definitely evolving now, right? So so um, we've got MVP out. It's on the App Store. It's on Google Play. You can download it today, free version, um, but it's MVP. Um, so uh, it's available for individuals, and all it's about is kind of making sure that individuals are, are aligned to their own values and meta, making better decisions around their their life, right? Um, so it's contextualized, you capture your mood, and over time you can see kind of analytics around how you're feeling with that context. So when you go to a particular location or you spend time with an individual, you know, I've got you in my app, you know, so I'm, you I'm on the floor. Boss and say I'm miserable. I'm miserable, oh. especially as Danny. Oh, goodness, there's no <laughs> minus numbers on here. Um, but yeah, so for the individual. And I think we're on a journey there on the direct-to-consumer market where there's probably a year's worth of backlog features and functions. So you talk about external data sets. Um, you, you talk about, you know, feature-rich features uh, flags and, and voice and video to be captured as part of the moment that all lead into the analysis. Um, so absolutely. And then we're looking at emotional prevalence and contagion in the corporate world or organizations generally. So how do the emotions that manifest themselves dynamically, hour by hour, day by day in an organization lead to the performance or correlate to the performance of that organization. So you may have a culture or a set of ethics um, and as a business owner or as a board or as an executive team, everyone that walks through the door will just demonstrate those values and ethics and values, right? So, so they'll just have them because we interviewed those people. Ignoring the fact that those people have lives and external and internal factors impact those individual emotions every single day and it changes. It's a constant moving feast. So understanding the emotions that exist, good and bad, within your organization can start to help you close the gap between how an organization is self-perceiving and the culture that may exist. Yeah, that's massively important. And to use a cheesy plug here, I, I do think we have came full circle in that conversation. <laughs> um, what you were saying earl, er, earlier on about business being abhorrent when you were running Hutchinson Networks, you, you've lost yourself. It's clear what you're doing now is trying to address um, some of these demons, perhaps. Very astute, very astute, yeah, Danny. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, Paul, thanks very much for coming and chatting with me. Um, hopefully we'll do it again sometime, but um, enjoyed yourself. A real pleasure and yeah, can't thank you enough. So thank you for having me. Excellent. Cheers now. Cheers.